right, good morning, everybody. So glad to see you this morning, and I hope you have your Bible with you and that you'll open it up to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. Today we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Last week we wrapped up our study uh, that took us about eight and a half months of 1 Peter. We made transition into this new study of 2 Peter. I talked you through some high-altitude final thoughts from 1 Peter and then tried to share some basic introductory material for 2 Peter. We spent a good deal of time on authorship of 2 Peter, acknowledging that there is an historical controversy, but we ended up affirming the orthodox position of embracing the Apostle Peter as the author of this letter, as well as the first letter. We watched at the very end of the service a great video from the Bible Project that gave us a good, I think, faithful overview of 2 Peter. Um, and I want you to remember in, in reflecting on that, that the issue in 1 Peter was opposition from the outside. And, and the issue in 2 Peter is, is opposition from the inside in false teaching. Not persecution, but false teaching and false teachers in, in 2 Peter. We watched that video and then we read the text together from the beginning to the end. And as we wrapped things up last week, we prayed that God would give us eyes that can see and that do see as we study 2 Peter, that we would see the things he wants to show us. We prayed that he would give us ears that can hear and do hear what he has to say to us. And we prayed that God would give us soft hearts to receive the message, to believe the message, and to respond to it rightly. And it is wise for us to continue to pray along those lines, that God would do the work that only he can do in opening our eyes and our ears and our hearts to his word. Well, today we're going to dive into the text of 2 Peter. We will see that these opening Greetings are not throwaway words. We cannot just zip through verses 1 and 2 or even verses 1, 2, and 3 in order to get to the good stuff. Friends, this is the good stuff. In, in fact, I believe that every time we open the book to whatever page of the book we open, if we read it and study it, we will find that this is the good stuff. That every page, every word that comes from the mouth of God is the good stuff. And we want to study it. So we are thankful for the word of God. And we want to engage in the spiritual discipline of scripture intake. In its variety of forms, we want to be taking in the word of God. In daily reading, in our own private study, in memorization and meditation. And in hearing the word preached. In hearing the word preached, that is part of scripture intake. Intake. So let me just say, before we get into the text today, if I could ask one thing of you this week, it would be to lean in, like to lean forward, not to sit back and relax in some kind of passive posture, but be an active listener today. Do the hard work of seeing more than mere formality in these first few verses. Do the hard work of recognizing that the Apostle Peter is planting seeds in these initial greetings that are going to develop into beautiful flowers as this letter unfolds. There is so much for us to see today. And if we treat it as mere formality, we're going to miss, miss much of what God has to say to us today and what he's going to say to us as we read on in this letter. So let's read it together. Today we're going to only look at the first two verses, but I'm telling you it's more than enough. It's more than enough for us to pay attention to today. So God's word in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 says this. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus 
our Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for this letter. Thank you for Second Peter. This word that you breathed out of your mouth for us. You have spoken so that we would know you. You have spoken so that we would know ourselves in light of who you are. You have given this letter to us for our good, to make us adequate and equipped for every good work. So we ask that you would use this book to teach us more about our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would use this book to conform us more to his image every day. Father, we recognize that many things that people say about Jesus are simply not true. They don't line up with your word. So we ask that you would help us to see the difference and to stand on the truth that you have revealed to us in your word. In the face of false teachers and false teachings, that we would stand on the truth that you have revealed to us in your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at our two verses today, you're going to notice that there are basically three parts of the text. And then there's one huge lesson for us to learn. Three parts of the text. First, we're going to see the author identify himself. And we're going to spend some time on that because it's super important. Number two, we're going to see the author identify his audience. And there, there is a really important and complex theological truth for us to see. Number three, we will see the author's wish for his audience. That grace and peace would be multiplied to them through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then, after we deal with those three parts of the text, we're going to zoom out a little bit, and we're going to see a huge lesson in Christology. A huge lesson just in these first two verses on Christology. Christology is the study of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in these first two verses of initial greetings with the people to whom Peter is writing, he says so much about Jesus, so much about our Lord Jesus Christ. It is beautiful and wonderful, complex and difficult, and true. And so it's worth our time to dig in and work hard to understand it. So let's look first at the author identifying himself. Look at verse 1, part 1. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now right off the bat, some of your translations read Simeon Peter here instead of Simon Peter. And that rendering accords with the earliest and best manuscripts. But I want you to know that Simeon and Simon are essentially the same name. We would not distinguish between the two today in our translating. And in the first century, no one would have balked at the use of either or at using them interchangeably. If anything, Simeon, the version Simeon, is the more Jewish spelling of the name that we're more familiar with, Simon. It it would be like, my my name is Chris. You know that, right? And yesterday, I ran into a childhood friend of mine whose name is also Chris. But he spells his with a K, and I spell mine with a C-H. And I don't know all the reasons behind that. Maybe his comes from one cultural background and mine comes from another. Maybe he has a brother who has a name with a K and I have, not really. Um, There's some reason behind it, but it's the same name. And that's very much what's going on here. Now, interestingly, connected to last week, in the argument over authorship, both sides of that argument use Simeon here in their argument. One side says that Peter would never call himself Simeon, that he would only call himself Simon, that Peter would never call himself Simeon, and so he must not be the genuine author of the letter. And the other side of the argument says only Peter would call himself Simeon. So he must be, Peter must be the author of the letter. I, I just, I want to share that with you just a little tidbit to show you just how weird that argument is 
And like I often do, I want to caution you against missing the bigger point by being distracted by that small argument. The the big point here is not whether it's Simeon Peter or Simon Peter. The big thing to notice here is how Peter describes himself as a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Bondservant and apostle. That's worth spending some time on. That's worth digging into and understanding what that means because both of those terms are super rich with meaning. The word bondservant is used to refer to a particular type of slave in the first century and before one who loves his master and is devoted to service to his master. A bondservant is a slave who is given wholly over to the will of his master with joy and with gladness. We know, we're familiar with this term because it's one of Paul's favorite ways to refer to himself. Often as he writes to people, he says, I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, It is a title of humility, but also authority, and we'll tease that out a little more later. Bondservant, Peter identifies himself first. Second, he identifies himself as apostle. This word at its root means a messenger. It means one who is sent on a mission. It means an envoy or a delegate, one commissioned by another to represent him in some sort of way. And this word can be used in a general sense to refer to all of us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ because all of us have been sent by him on a mission, right? We have been sent by him as delegates into this world to proclaim a message from him, right? That there is salvation in no one else except the Lord Jesus Christ. And that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have been sent by the Lord to do this. And so in some sense, we are, as his people, apostles. But we would always say we are apostles with a little a. Because there's another way that word is used in the New Testament as a very technical word to refer to the 12 apostles and to Paul, who were these men who were especially chosen to be authoritative heralds of the kingdom in the very early days of the church. And it seems clear that Peter here, in the introduction to this letter, is using the word that way. Like this is apostle with a capital A. And none of us in this room hold that office. None of us in this room hold that. In fact, nobody on the planet today holds that office the same way Peter did. So the Protestants in the room should have said amen to that. To that. Like we, we believe that that office, that function, that particular technical uh, term is, is a first century early church term and not active today. We are generally sent ones and we speak the message of Jesus authoritatively, but when I open my mouth, it's not the same way as Peter opened his mouth, all right, as an apostle. And so he is claiming that authoritative role. Now, I think it is best to see of Jesus Christ applying to both terms, bondservant and apostle. He's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. And there are three ways to understand what's going on here in this description. One way is to see both terms as statements of humility. To see both bondservant and apostle as statements of humility from Peter. Because both bondservants and apostles are under the authority of the one who is greater than them. Under the authority of the one who has sent them. Under the authority of a master. Both words are an appeal to someone who is higher. And so Peter is doubly admitting here his lowliness. By identifying himself as a bondservant and an apostle, he's not puffing himself up. In fact, he's making himself low 
to show that Jesus is the one who is high. Does that make sense? So on the one hand, we could take both of these as statements of humility. On the other hand, we could take both of these statements as statements of authority. Humility and authority. And though it is derived authority, it is authority nonetheless. It's easy to see that with apostle. When Peter identifies himself to these to his audience as an apostle, it's a bit of a flex. He's flexing some muscle here. He's flexing some authoritative muscle. I'm not coming to you as merely your friend. I'm not coming to you as merely your brother. I'm not coming to you as merely a fellow sufferer. I'm coming to you as an apostle. And so you need to listen. There's a flex of authority in that. It's harder to see that with the, with the bondservant phrase. But if you look throughout the scriptures and notice who is identified throughout the scriptures as a servant of God, like who is identified throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament with this like, I'm the slave of God, I'm a bondservant of God, you'll come up with a list like this. Moses, Joshua, David, many of the prophets, the Apostle Paul, James. You'll see some heavy hitters who are identified this way. So to be identified as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just a statement of humility, it in itself is also a statement of authority. So on the one hand, we could take both of these as statements of humility. We could take both of them as statements of authority, or we could take them as both, right? We, we could see here Peter trying to get the best of humility and the best of authority as he speaks to these people that he loves so much. It may be that Peter is intending to highlight his humility with the term bondservant and his authority by identifying himself as an apostle. And I'd prefer to go there. I'd prefer to say that Peter is getting the best of both worlds here and saying, I am a bondservant. I am only a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I speak with authority unto you. R.C. Sproul uh, sees it this way when he says, in the Christian community, the lowest possible layer or stratification of society was that of a slave. And the most elevated office, save for the office of Jesus himself, was that of an apostle. So he, that is Peter, is simultaneously the highest and the lowest of Christian society. And it's with that humility and authority or humble authority that Peter speaks to the people. Right? So, so these are not throwaway words. These are not throwaway words. As Peter begins this letter to them, he identifies himself in a very particular way to set up the message that he is going to communicate to them. All right? So first, we see the author identify himself. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Read on. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man, there's some good stuff here as he identifies his audience. He identifies them as those who have received faith. Now let's stop there. This is really interesting stuff. That word received, some of your translations may say obtained. Those who have obtained a similar faith as ours, that word is rich. And the picture behind the word for received or obtained means to be granted something by the casting of lots. It means to be granted something by the casting of lots. And you know, uh, in the Bible, lots are at the discretion of the Lord. He is the one who controls the lot. So to be granted something by the casting of the lots. One of my friends summed it up well this week 
by saying that this word means that we are given something not by our own initiative, right? To be given something not by our own initiative. So he says, to those who have received, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. And as we think about this, Ephesians chapter 2 may be helpful. Let me just say, Ephesians chapter 2 is always helpful. Like anytime, anytime you're teaching the Bible and you can get to Ephesians chapter 2, you should do it. And you should not just read part of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10, but all of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. And so let's do that now. Remember, we're talking here about receiving, like not, not by any initiative of our own, but receiving faith. And look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Listen to verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Right? That was a VBS throwback. Did you not make it with me? Talked about that last bit of the text all summer at Vacation Bible School. I want you to zoom in on verse 8, though, and connect it to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, when he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from God. What do we, how do we get a gift? We receive it. It is given to us. It is credited to us. It is granted to us, not by our own initiative. So he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. I'm arguing that we receive faith as a gift. Even our faith is a gift from God in accordance with this text and with Ephesians chapter 2 and a whole bunch of other places I could go. But we need to zoom in on what does he mean, what does Peter mean by faith? Because when we read about faith in the New Testament, we read it sometimes as an objective thing, and sometimes as a subjective thing. What I mean by that is sometimes faith is spoken of in the objective sense, referring to the content of the gospel. Sometimes it is the faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, right, that we must contend for. Sometimes when faith is spoken of in the New Testament, it's spoken of in the objective sense, referring to the doctrines of God's holiness and man's sinfulness and Christ's sacrifice. Sometimes we talk about the objective sense of faith as grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. I did it just a minute ago, right? So there's an objective sense of faith in the New Testament, but there's also a subjective sense of faith in the New Testament. Faith as the experience of trusting Christ for salvation. 
So it is faith. It is faith by which I believe in Jesus Christ unto salvation. I rest my whole weight on him for salvation. You've heard me describe it in that sense, right? What is faith? It is trusting in the person and work of Christ for my right standing before God, right? So which does Peter mean here? Is Peter talking about the objective content of the faith, or is he talking about our subjective experience of faith in believing? And I'm going to argue that he's talking about both. He's talking about both primarily because you cannot have one without the other. And this is one of the things we're going to learn that is so important in 2 Peter, is you can't think wrongly about Jesus and have a right relationship with him. You can't think wrongly about the content of the gospel and be in right standing with God through the gospel. If you've got a wrong doctrine of the faith, you will not have a right practice of believing. It just can't happen. These two things must always travel together. You can't have a right and true experience of salvation apart from right and true doctrine of salvation. And brothers and sisters, this teaches us that doctrine matters. Doctrine matters. You cannot be wrong about Jesus. You cannot be wrong about the gospel and be saved. But even in talking about that, never forget, Never forget that even your faith is a gift from God. One of the things that Peter is teaching us here is that even our faith is a gift from God. And you know what that does? That keeps us from boasting. And that seems to be the connection that Paul was making in Ephesians chapter 2, so that no one may boast, right? For we are his workmanship. All of this is about him. Because if we are receiving something, what could we possibly boast of? Only in the one who gave it to us, right? I don't get Christmas presents and say, look, look at what I got. No, I say, look at what they gave. Look at what they gave. Look how great this giver is to me. The giver, the giver always gets the glory. The recipient gets the good, no doubt about it, right? We get the good. But God, as the giver, always gets the glory. Remember that. It's all about him. Notice Peter, Peter says, to those who have received a faith, of the same kind as ours. That phrase, same kind as ours, is really cool. There's a really interesting thing going on in the language behind same kind as ours that only NIV captures. Only NIV of the translations I looked at captures the essence here when it says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. As precious as ours. The root word in there is the word precious. The same word that Peter used a bunch of times back in 1 Peter to indicate the exceedingly high value of our faith. The exceedingly high value of the sacrifice of Christ, the blood of Jesus is precious. And he says, you friends, audience, you have received a faith of the same preciousness as ours. Peter says he is writing to people who have received a faith that is just as valuable, just as precious as theirs. Which raises the question, who is they? Who's behind ours here? What's he talking about when he says your faith, your faith is just as precious, just as valuable as ours? Well, some take it as a reference to the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. That Peter 
as a Jewish man who could trace his lineage back to Abraham, says to a largely Gentile audience, I'm writing to you who have received a faith that is just as precious as ours. That that you Gentiles, your experience of the faith, your salvation is just as precious, is just as valuable as ours, though we can trace our lineage back to Abraham. I think that's a fair way to look at this. There's another way to understand it, though, where Peter may be making a reference to the seeming divide between apostles and ordinary Christians. And you're going to see a little bit of that tension even in this letter as Peter is going to make reference to things that he saw as an apostle, namely the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus that other people didn't get to see. But if that's the case, if he's, making, if he's hitting on the tension between the super apostles, the apostles, and us ordinary average Christians, what he is saying here is also very affirming. He is saying, you have received a salvation. You have received a faith that is equally precious, equally valuable to the salvation that we have experienced, though we walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and, and ate meals with Jesus. Do you, do you catch my drift here? I don't know which it is. I would tend to argue that it's the apostles, ordinary Christians tension, not the Jews and Gentiles Christians, but either way, the lesson is the same. Peter here is affirming a solidarity between all of us who have received this precious gift of faith. It brings us all together. Your faith and your faith and your faith are equally precious to Peter's faith. We are together as recipients of faith that is precious and valuable, of exceedingly great worth, and we are together in that. We, we don't create a hierarchy, a hierarchy within the church of, well, you're the pastors and you're the people, and my faith is more valuable than your faith. No, no, no. In fact, maybe that's part of what Peter's setting up when he calls himself a bondservant and apostle. He's saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what end of the spectrum we're on from the outside looking in. We all, before the Lord, have received faith of the same kind of value, the same preciousness, and it is precious, right? This gift of salvation is so precious. Notice also that Peter says that this happens by the righteousness of God. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, we've already talked about that, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter seems to use the word righteousness here differently than Paul typically uses it. Peter, as he uses the word righteousness in 2 Peter in particular, is going to stress the fairness and the justice of God. So he is teaching us here that it was fair and just for God to save us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He's teaching us that that's fair and just, it's righteous. He's also teaching us that it was fair and just for him to grant us faith to trust in Jesus for that salvation. It's righteous for him to give that to us, for us to receive that faith to trust in Jesus for our salvation. But the biggest and best part of this verse is that last phrase where he he says, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Put a pin there. We're going to spend a whole bunch of time on that in a little while when we get to the big picture of Christology here. But for now, let's recognize that the audience to whom Peter is writing, they're like us, right? They're like us who have been saved by God's grace, who have received a faith that is precious. It is precious just like theirs. And it was right and just and righteous for God to grant that to us through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So the applications here are two. From what we've learned in the identification of the audience, we learned two applications. Number one. Number one is about praying and preaching. Praying and preaching. If you're writing notes, capitalize and circle and there. If God is the one who grants faith for salvation, which this text indicates, and Ephesians chapter 2, and a bunch of other places, if God is the one who grants faith unto salvation, and people must believe in order to be saved, then we should devote our entire lives to praying and preaching. We should be praying that God would grant people faith to believe in Jesus for salvation. We should be praying that he would do that. If it is something that is received, we say to the giver, give it, right? We beg him to give faith to those who do not trust in Christ, that he would grant faith for them to believe in Jesus Christ. We pray to the giver of faith to give it. And we preach to all people everywhere that they must repent and believe in order to be saved. And those are not contradictory statements. Those are not contradictory concepts in the New Testament. They always go hand in hand. We pray that God will give faith and we call on people. We look them square in the eye and say, you must repent. You must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. So believe today. And in the background, in my mind, I'm saying, oh, God, grant them faith so that they will. And I'm, I'm preaching it with confidence that he will. That he will grant faith for men and women and boys and girls to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. Those two things go hand in hand. I'm telling you, this is rich. These are not, these are not throwaway words. This is not flyover material. He is saying, I'm writing to people who've been granted faith to believe in Jesus Christ. So we will pray and we will preach, right? We'll talk about that more in a minute. Application number two is about the gospel bringing us together. The gospel bringing us together. It is the same gospel that we preach today that Peter preached in Pente at Pentecost 2,000 years ago. When he first preached the gospel, what did he preach? Repent and believe. Right? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior. Repent of your sins and believe in him and you'll be saved. And what do we say today? The same thing. So it is the gospel that has brought us together over 2,000 years of Christian history. And brothers and sisters, it is the gospel that brings us together as the family of God. Our experience of the gospel, our experience of salvation brings us together. It's your story and your story and your story. They may have different nuances. They may have different details. But at the end of the day, your story and my story are exactly the same. I was dead. Now I'm alive. Jesus did it, right? I was dead in my transgressions. Now I'm alive. Jesus did that. Only he can do it. That's the story. That's our experience. You might have been 10 when you experienced. You might have been 70 when you experienced that. But the story is the same, and that brings us together, right? Who could elevate himself over another believer when we have all been saved by grace alone? When we have all been granted faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, who could elevate himself over another? No one. So Peter identifies his audience. Peter identifies himself. And then finally, he expresses a wish and a prayer for his people. Look at verse 2. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace. That's pretty standard, right? We should just zip through that. Must not be very significant. They all say it. Every letter says grace and peace. Let's just zip right through that. No, no, no. We would be wise to spend some time looking closely at grace and looking closely at peace. John MacArthur says grace, 
from the Greek word charis, is God's free, unmerited favor towards sinners, which grants those who believe the gospel complete forgiveness forever through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we sing with confidence, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Right? Grace is God's free, unmerited favor towards sinners where we experience complete forgiveness forever. Peace comes from a Greek word, arene. Peace with God and from him in all of life's circumstances is the effect of grace. It is the outworking of grace. You get grace and that brings about peace. Peace with God, primarily, you are at peace. You were at enmity with God because of your sin. Now, by his grace, you've been brought into friendship. You've been brought into peace with him. And that flows out of the forgiveness God has granted to all the elect. Grace and peace are rich. And this is Peter's prayer wish. Almost every scholar calls this the prayer wish. This is what Peter Peter desires for these people to whom he is writing. And this is what I desire for you. Grace and peace. But not that you would just have grace and peace, but that your experience of grace and peace would be growing, right? Look at what he says. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. Be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Well, if you are in Christ, you have grace and peace, right? Like objectively, you have grace and peace if you are in Christ. But Peter's desire is that they would experience more of the grace that is theirs and the peace that is theirs in Christ. That it will be multiplied to them. And notice how it becomes multiplied to them. It becomes multiplied to them through or in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Be on the lookout for that word knowledge in 2 Peter. It's going to be everywhere. It's going to be a theme. And there are two facets of knowledge. Just like there are two facets of faith, that objective content and the subjective experience, the same is true with knowledge. There's a type of knowledge that is understanding of facts, understanding of statements, understanding of truths, right? And there's a facet of knowledge that is all about relationship. In fact, the word is sometimes used to describe the sexual union between a husband and a wife. He knew her. So there's an intimate, relational knowledge that is implied sometimes. So we've got factual knowledge and relational knowledge. So which does Peter desire us to grow in? Well, both. Of course, they go hand in hand, right? Can I grow in my relational knowledge with Laura if I don't grow also in my factual knowledge of her? Like, can I be deeply in love with her if I don't know her middle name? Could could I rightly say, oh, I'm passionately in love with this woman and I don't know her birthday? That's crazy, right? And so for Peter, he says, "I I want you to, I want grace and peace to be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to grow in your knowledge of the truths, the doctrinal truths about our Lord and in your relational experience with Him. Both understanding and relationship should be growing in our walk with Jesus. Now the danger is we tend to lean one way or the other. We tend to say, oh, I want more of that relational knowledge, but I don't want to read the book. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to learn anything. That's hard and boring. I just want more fire. It doesn't work that way in any relationship, does it? 
There's one danger, and that's going on in a lot of places, a lot of people. There's another danger where we say, I love passing tests. I love getting good grades, and I want to know all the facts. I want to know all the minute little facts, in fact. I want to know more than you know. But it becomes cold and indifferent and dead orthodoxy. Is that any good if I know all the little details about her, what size shoe she wears, when her birthday is, what her favorite color is, and all this stuff, and I, like, never smile about it? Is that healthy? No, it's not healthy. And I fear that that's the way I tend to lean, and we can tend to lean around here. So we want to be growing in both of these things. So as we pursue knowledge, as we pursue understanding, let's also let that stir us up to passion. Pursue this. Pursue this. The more you know about Jesus factually, the more you will know him experientially. You can't have one without the other. Either way, you can't have one without the other, and we want to be growing, and that's Peter's wish. That's Peter's wish, and so we should expect that as we study 2 Peter, that this will be multiplied to us as we study it. So Peter identifies himself, right? He identifies his audience, and then he expresses this wish that they would, that grace and peace will be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then last thing I want to do is zoom out from all this and learn a huge lesson in Christology. So look at verses 1 and 2 and look at all the ways Jesus is identified. Let's just look at Jesus here. Forget about Peter. Forget about the audience. What can we learn about Jesus in these two verses? First thing we'll learn about Jesus is that he is the Christ. He is the Christ. That is not Jesus' last name. That is his title, right? That means that he is the chosen one. He is the anointed one. He is the long-awaited promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the one who would come and deliver his people and fulfill all the promises of God in the Old Testament. And this was the message that Peter preached at Pentecost. He preached that this Jesus is the Christ. And people's lives were forever changed. Look at it in Acts chapter 2. This is, this is right at the end of his great sermon, the very first uh, Christian sermon, arguably, he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Make no mistake, Jesus is the Christ, the promised one. This is what got Paul in trouble. This is what got Paul in trouble. When he would go to the synagogue, he would, he would travel from town to town. He would go to the synagogue, and he would show up at the synagogue where all the Jews were, and he would teach them that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus from Nazareth who died and rose again. He's the Christ. He's the promised Messiah. And they wanted to kill him for it. It's not the Messiah they were looking for, but he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. That is rich, and we're going to see that teased out throughout 2 Peter. First thing we learn about Jesus in these two verses is that he is the Christ. Second thing we learn is that he is God. That's outrageous. That is outrageous. He says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no way linguistically to separate all of that. He does it. He separates it later in verse 2. But here he is saying that Jesus is our God. Jesus is our God. That will get you killed. To this day, that will get you killed in parts of the world. Remember, as we consider this, as we consider Peter saying Jesus is God, remember who it is that's saying it. 
It's Peter. Peter is saying of Jesus, he is God. This is a guy that walked around with Jesus, that shared meals with Jesus, that camped out with Jesus, that cracked jokes with Jesus. And he is saying now, he is God. It's clearly saying it in the text. Clearly indicating the full divinity of Jesus. There is some false teaching that this is correcting. False teaching that was probably going around in the first century, that was definitely going around by the fourth century. And I want you to know about it because it's still going around today. There are a lot of people who would say that Jesus is not God. There are a lot of people who would not affirm the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of people that look and sound a lot like us. So I want you to know your heresies. And we're going to do this pretty often in 2 Peter. Get to know a heretic. That's what we're going to call it. And the heretic that we're going to get to know today is Arius. So read this with me. One scholar says that Arianism is a heresy named after Arius, a priest and false teacher in the early 4th century AD in Alexandria, Egypt. One of the earliest and probably most important item of debate among early Christians was the subject of Christ's deity. Was Jesus truly God in the flesh or was Jesus a created being? Was Jesus God or not? Arius denied the deity of the Son of God, holding that Jesus was created by God as the first act of creation and that the nature of Christ was anomoios, unlike that of God the Father. Arianism, then, is the view that Jesus is a finite created being with some divine attributes, but he is not eternal and not divine in and of himself, and Arianism is heresy. Read on. Arius relied too much on the human experience of sonship to illustrate the relationship of the father of the son to the father. Like human fathers, said Arius, God the Father existed before God the Son. Arius claimed that the Father begat the Son in his first act of creation. The Son was created before all other creatures and maintains an exalted status as an agent through, wh- through whom everything else was created. Nevertheless, as worthy as he is, the Son is, in the final analysis, just a creature, according to Arius. Arius taught that and had followers in the 4th century and was condemned as a heretic by texts like 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter called him God. The heresy of Arianism is still around, alive, and well today, primarily amongst the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. These are two groups who say that Jesus is not God. He's the first and greatest created thing. Like God, but he's not God. He's a created being. A great one, but a created being nonetheless. We have no problem looking at Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and seeing that mistake in them. But I saw something this week that says many of you would make that same mistake today. In fact, Lifeway Lifeway did a study that I saw on Twitter this week. I'm studying about Arianism, and I run across this on Twitter. And really what I want you to look at is this graph at the bottom. Question is, Jesus, or the statement is, Jesus is the first and greatest created being created by God. Agree or disagree? Well, if you look at the bottom here, in 2016, about 55% of general Americans from 2016 to 2022, about 60% of Americans said, yeah, he's the first and greatest created being. What's crazy about this is that evangelicals, 
by belief, people like you and me are more prone to affirm that statement, which is heresy. This is not a problem from the 4th century. This is not just a problem from the 1st century. This is not just a problem with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. This is a problem in this room. Brothers and sisters, if someone calls you on the phone and says, hey, was Jesus the first and greatest created being? You say, no, he is God. And you hang up a phone. He is God. He is very God. He is fully God. He is completely God. We got to affirm that. I do this sometimes as, I, as I'm preaching through uh, various texts that we come to the divinity of God, uh, the, the divinity of Jesus. I will stop and say, Jesus is God. And, I, and you will just sit there. And I am wanting you to affirm that because of this. When we were talking about this this morning in prayer, Reed Roper said, Reed Roper said they must not have called anybody from First Baptist in this poll. Oh, man, this terrifies me terrifies me that amongst evangelicals, 80% at one point, 80% are heretics. You cannot think this about Jesus and go to heaven. If he is a created being, whether he's the greatest or not, if he's a created being, he is not God and he cannot save you. You need the God-man as your sacrifice. You need the God-man as your savior. Nothing less will do. So we condemn Arianism as heresy, and we affirm the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ here at First Baptist Church. Thank you. One guy with me. We're making progress. So we learn that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is God. We also learn that Jesus is the Savior, which is a fulfillment of the promise that was made to his earthly father, Joseph, when he was told about his birth. He said, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Jesus is our God, and he is our Savior, and only our God can be our Savior. He will save his people, not from Rome, not from Russia, not from Hollywood. He will save his people from their sin. He does that through his sacrifice on the cross. Jesus is Savior. And then finally we see Jesus is Lord. So much Christology in this introduction. He is the boss. I asked a kid one time, How would you, what, what do you think it means that Jesus is Lord? He said that means he's the boss. Like, you're right about that. That's gold. And we submit to him as the boss. And submitting to him as Lord, acknowledging him as Lord, is essential for salvation. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 8 with me. What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching to you. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. For the scripture says whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. Submit to him as Lord, not just Savior, as Lord, as the boss of your life. Remember, 2 Peter is correcting false teachings. So leaning in to truths like this, working hard to see these things is going to be important, but also trusting that God will open our eyes to see it. Getting it right about Jesus is essential. So what do we do? 
We preach and we pray. We've already talked about that. We preach and we pray. So the question is, who's your one? Who's your one person in your life that's lost without Jesus? And are you praying for them? And are you seizing opportunities to preach to them? Also, think about the billions of people on the planet who don't have any access to the gospel. Are you praying that God will get the gospel to them? Are you ready for him to say, yep, I'll get the gospel to them through you? So go. Who's next? Who's next to go to the nations? Preach and pray. Second application is about the head and the heart. Let's have both of them engaged. I believe, I believe I'm prone to engage my head and miss my heart. So I want the truths of who Jesus is to stir my heart to worship him with passion. Douglas Moo says, knowing God does not mean having a warm, intimate relationship. It does mean having a warm, intimate relationship with our creator. But it also means understanding who he is with all its implications. To avoid the false teacher's errors, these Christians must not only have a warm and fuzzy feeling toward God, they also need to know some specific things about him, what he has done and what he demands of us. The biblical writers demand a knowledge of God that unites the head and the heart. We must be careful not to sacrifice the head in favor of the heart. We need them both, and and 2 Peter is going to engage them both. And finally, the application is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Get it right about Jesus. Like, do the work of understanding Jesus. Do the work of being able to get a call like that. Do you think Jesus is the best and highest created being, the first and highest created being? And you immediately like, Jesus and created? Nope. Highest? Yeah, I'm with that. He's the highest because he created everything that exists. Because he is God. He is God. Get it right about Jesus. That means be a theologian. R.C. Sproul says, I have spent my life studying theology, and I wish I had 10 lifetimes to study theology because it pertains to the knowledge of God. And the more we learn of God, the more we know him, the greater capacity we have to love him. The more we know him, the greater we can love him. We want to love him more, right? So let's get to know him, and we will see that in Second Peter. Let's stand together and pray. <clears throat> Father, help us. This is a lot. This is a lot. And we're overwhelmed even in the first two verses. And so we pray that you will make things clear to us, clear to us about who Jesus is so that we can affirm and celebrate, so that we can trust and obey, so that we can worship and adore our Lord, our Savior, our God, the Christ. We don't want to settle for warm and fuzzy. And we don't want to settle for dry orthodoxy. We want to have our affections raised to white hot passion by the truth that you've revealed to us in your word. God, we pray for men and women and boys and girls in this room who don't know you. They're far from you. God, reach down and change them today. Grant them faith to trust in Christ. Be saved. Grant them repentance to turn away from their sins and be saved and follow you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name.